So the book of Hebrews starts out by reminding us about how we have received the truth. Specifically, in this context, the message of redemption. Might be a strange way to start this letter, if you're familiar with what it contains. Just a reminder about how we have gotten the truth. It was promised by the prophets of the Old Testament, and then it was fulfilled by Jesus. So here's how we will divide this passage. We are reminded that God revealed the plan of redemption in two stages. And here they are. God revealed the promises of redemption through the prophets. God revealed the fulfillment of redemption through his son. So we'll start with this first one. God revealed the promises of redemption through the prophets. So we're talking about essentially two stages of revelation. So kind of like a progression. But we shouldn't think of this progression of revelation in terms like it was less true with the prophets of the Old Testament and then became more true with with Christ in the New Testament. Or it was less significant with the Old Testament prophets and then became more significant with Christ. I mean, Hebrews chapter 11 wipes that clean out of our thinking in the famous gallery of faith. The promises of the Old Testament were not insignificant or not valuable. They were absolutely crucial. We should think of these stages of revelation in terms of promise to fulfillment. That's how we should think about this, from promise to fulfillment. God, through the Old Testament prophets, promised things. And what our author of Hebrews has in view here are promises of redemption and that Christ fulfilled them, which becomes very evident as as you read the book. The entire letter examines these promises and their fulfillment in Christ. But before our author gets to that, right here out of the gate, he affirms the validity and authority of the Old Testament. Look at verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. I mean, here here we have a, a most basic affirmation of our faith, which is God spoke. The God of the Bible didn't sit in heaven, spin the world at the beginning of time, and still sits there today just letting it keep spinning until it stops. No, God is providentially involved with his creation, with his people. And here, we're reminded that God spoke. We're reminded that God spoke to his people through the prophets. He spoke at various times through through biblical history and through various means, sometimes through incredible means, like Moses hearing from God through the burning bush is an example. He gave doctrine, he gave direction, he gave promises through the prophets. He gave them revelation, they then spoke it to the people. Many times they wrote it down, which is how we have the scripture. Verse 1 is a direct validation of that revelation given to the prophets in the times of the Old Testament. The majority of Hebrews chapter 1 actually is an enormous Old Testament quote. Much of the book of Hebrews, in fact, quotes the Old Testament. So we must not forget that the Old Testament written by the prophets is just as much God's revelation as the New Testament is. And I think this is very intentional on the part of our author here. Because throughout the letter, he's going to be calling 
the Hebrew believers, to continue in their faith in the person and work of Christ. He's going to tell them that the works of the law do not justify. Only through the atonement of Christ are we justified. He's going to be correcting their misconceptions about certain Old Testament faith heroes. An example of that is is Moses. In the Jewish tradition, as, as great as a figure as he was, Moses has tended to be elevated to a near legendary status, a, a status to which even the scripture doesn't elevate him. And so our author calls his believing Hebrew audience at one point to look to Christ as more superior than even Moses. These are the types of propositions that our author of Hebrews makes throughout this letter. And so right out of the gate, he is intentional to remind his readers that the Old Testament That which God spoke to the prophets is still his inspired revelation, even though we turn to Christ. God's revelation is validated. You know, there's a notion today among some celebrity mega-evangelicals that Christians must must unhitch from the Old Testament. Perhaps you've heard that before. You should separate off from the Old Testament They teach that you cannot function rightly as a free Christian if you hold on to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is just like an old ball and chain. It's a rusty relic that just keeps you held back in your freedom in Christ. Just listen to the New Testament. Just read and believe perhaps the red letters of Jesus in the Gospels. That's all you need, they say. Of course, that is a catastrophic view of Scripture. I've heard John MacArthur say that you would not be a Christian without the Old Testament. There would be no New Testament fulfillment if there were no Old Testament promises. To to unhitch yourself from the Old Testament is to unhitch yourself from the New Testament as well. All the promises God gave through the prophets ultimately lead to fulfillment of those promises. So what redemption promises are we referring to? What exactly does our author of Hebrews have in view Well, there are many that he unpacks throughout his letter, but there are a couple of promises that appear prominently later in the book. Here's one, for example, Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember No more. This new covenant, this writing my teaching on their heart, the Lord says, this forgiving of sin and never remembering it, this promise is pointing to what would be accomplished in Jesus in his high priestly ministry, which is what Hebrews 8 and 9 is all about. Also, Zechariah is another example, 9-9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
As the prophet Zechariah promises the arrival of a king from the line of David riding a donkey, which of course was fulfilled in Christ's triumphal entry. Here God promised a more superior king who is coming and is coming with salvation, which is, act, which is exactly how Christ came the first time. There are echoes of the promises like this in Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 7. And there are other redemption promises from the prophets that we could examine that our author brings up later in the book, all of them fulfilled in the Son of God. So God revealed the promises of redemption through the prophets. Now we'll see that God revealed the fulfillment of redemption through his Son, verses 2 through 4. Look at verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. In these last days, meaning from the time of the Messiah until the end. So we are in the last days, as Scripture describes it. And in this time, God has spoken the message of redemption to his people by his Son. Now there's a dynamic here of Christ carrying the message and then fulfilling the message of redemption. He carried the message. He spoke the message of redemption. You remember that Jesus is even called the Word. John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. Jesus Christ is fully suited to bring the final Word from God, the fulfillment of of those redemption promises from the prophets. Before, God spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days, the Scripture tells us God has spoken to us through His Son. And the rest of this passage in Hebrews chapter 1 that we're looking at tonight essentially provides evidence for why Jesus was qualified for this. What makes Him superior? And that's what the whole book is about. If you're familiar with academia in any way, you're likely familiar with the three basic formats of writing. So you have the MLA format, you have the APA format, and then you have the, the Turabian format. And each, each school kind of uses a different format of writing. By the end of seminary, it felt like I read, wrote several thousand essays in Turabian format. So I'm very familiar with Kate Turabian. But if you're familiar with the APA format, you'll know that you typically produce what's called an abstract that's placed prior to the paper itself, prior to the body of the paper. And an abstract is is essentially just a succinct, short summary of what your paper is going to go into detail explaining. So you'll see those in a lot of medical journals, because like a layperson like me can't understand what they're actually saying, so they have to write a short summary. So so it's, it's helpful for us. Verses 2 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 1 functions, I think, as the abstract for the whole letter of Hebrews. It's a succinct, short summary statement of what this letter is all about. And as you can see by just casually reading these verses, it is all about Christ, Christ, Christ. It's all about His superiority. It's all about what qualifies Him to carry and fulfill the message of redemption. So here's why he's qualified to fulfill these these promises. He's the master of creation. He's the perfect representative. 
He is the victorious Messiah, and he is superior to all created things. So he's the master of creation, is this first one. Look at verse 2. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Scripture says here that Christ is heir over all things. Everything that exists will one day come under his dominion in his kingdom. Now, Christ is already Lord over all creation, which this verse points out. But one day, he's going to rule as sovereign king physically over all things. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the appointed heir of all things. This is what our author of Hebrews is is reminding His audience, Jesus is not just another created being. He is the very Son of God. His divinity is declared. His rulership as creator and his right to rule is declared. The Messiah also is not just another political leader that was going to come to free them from temporal oppression as they were taught by Jewish tradition. They were looking for the wrong person. As Daniel said in Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, so that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." This is what our author means when he says God has appointed him heir of all things. The full extension of his authority will be realized one day. One day he will rule over creation, over the earth, over the nations in his full authority as king. And this is a great truth for believers, isn't it? I mean, the Hebrew believers needed to be reminded of this to keep boldly following their Lord. The Messiah wasn't just another man who would rule Israel and then one day die. He is the very heir of creation who is returning to exercise that authority. He not only will inherit creation, he is already the Lord of creation. You know, Scripture time and time again reflects that Jesus is the creator. Verse 2 here says, through him the world was made. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created. John 1, verse 3, all things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Creation is already his, because he is fully God. So what's the point of this in, in our context He can fulfill God's promises because He is God. He is the one who gave the promises. Who better to fulfill a promise than the one who gave it? The very Lord of creation gave these promises, and He is the one who fulfills them. So the Son of God is is fully able to carry and fulfill the message of redemption. He is the very sovereign master of all things. Next, He is the perfect representative. Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature 
and upholds all things by the word of his power. This word radiance, apagasma, it's only used one time in the entire New Testament. Right here, right here. It carries the meaning of forcefully shining light. Like the sun radiates its light. He shines forth the very glory of God. And I think this is what's illustrated in just a small way to the disciples at the Transfiguration. Just the shining glory of God. Now some Bibles might use the word reflection here. And I, I don't think that is the best way to say this. We should not think of Jesus as reflecting the glory of God like, like he's a mirror that bounces God's glory off of him and we see it. I don't think that's how we should think about this. He himself is God and radiates his own glory. The source of the glory is him. Now this verse sounds very familiar to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. Look here at Colossians 1, 15 and 16. This is one of those Pauline parallels that we mentioned a minute ago. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens, in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Sounds very much like Hebrews 1 verse 3. And also verse 2 with the creator language. He is the very image of God. MacArthur says that Christ is the perfect representation and manifestation of God. He is fully man, but we must never forget that he is also fully God in every way. There is no better person to undertake the necessary high priestly ministry that we need than the Lord Jesus Christ which is a big theme in Hebrews. He himself radiates God's glory. Christ is also the exact expression of his nature. Again, like the word radiance, this phrase exact expression isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament. This is, this is the only place you're going to find it. Now, in other Greek literature, this, this phrase was used often in context of engraving wood, uh, an image onto wood or imprinting an image onto a coin. Now, I, I don't know if any of you have ever been able to visit a U.S. Mint to, to take a tour and just see how coins are made, but it's really cool to see an imprint of an image put on a coin. So when you look at a penny, you know whose face it is, Abraham Lincoln. When you look at a, a quarter, you know whose face it is, George Washington. The imprinted image is an exact expression of the person or thing it's, it's representing. When you look at it, you know exactly who it is without any doubts or questions. It's, it's not a fuzzy image. It's, it's not like a lot of modern art where people's faces are kind of twisted and strangely contorted and abstractly patterned, which allows for or even requires subjective interpretation. No, you see it, and you know exactly who it is. You look at Jesus... And we are meant to know exactly who he is. Jesus Christ is not open to subjective interpretation like a piece of modern art. The scripture tells us exactly who he is. 
Colossians 1.15, like we just saw, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of God. F.F. Bruce says that the Son is the perfect imprint, the exact expression of the nature and essence of God in time and space. And there's more creator language here, too. And upholds all things by the word of his power. Again, parallels in Colossians 1. Jesus, who is the creator, maintains and sustains his creation. The Son of God moves all things toward its ultimate consummation. Everything that happens is in accordance with God's will, and it is moving toward its ultimate end. He is providentially involved in the events of his creation, exercising his wisdom to bring about his good and glorious purposes in all things. All things. So you can be encouraged then when utterly crazy things happen in the world around you. Jesus is sustaining his creation. It's actually not falling apart. It's moving toward its ultimate consummation. Remember, Jesus is already the master of creation and of the nations. Nothing happens outside of his control. This is meant to show us right up front that he is the perfect representative. Again, a major theme in the book of Hebrews. Chapters 4, essentially through chapter 9, Christ is contrasted with Aaron and his ministry as high priest and the Levitical system to show that only Christ can provide that perfect and once-for-all lasting atonement that covers all the sins of his people. And only Christ has the ability to come between sinful man and holy God as our mediator. But here in verse 3, we just have this short summary. So why is Jesus qualified to carry the message of redemption and fulfill it? Because he's the perfect representative to do so. Now this ties directly into the next qualification, which is that he is the victorious Messiah. I almost combined these, but I decided not to at the last second. Look at verse 3 again. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this this is referring to the atonement. It's referring to his work as our great high priest. The atonement, the, the work of Jesus to earn our salvation. Again, another major theme in the book of Hebrews. Not only is Jesus the great high priest who comes between man and God as the perfect representative to make the sacrifice for sin, but he himself, our great high priest himself, is the sacrifice. He is the one who has provided permanent atonement for sin. Hebrews 9 and 10 are all about this. Christ doesn't bring a burnt offering of an animal to God to make atonement. Hebrews 10 verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So instead, Titus 2.14, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. I mean, the, the very Son of God brought himself to that altar as the sacrifice. He gave up himself on the cross. He has redeemed us. He has made purification of sins. He has accomplished something 
that no one has ever been able to accomplish, which is permanent purification, permanent atonement, once for all. That's never been done. As revered and set apart as as the Levitical priests were, they could not provide this. Even the high priest could not provide this, who once a year on the Day of Atonement was permitted inside the Holy of Holies to approach the presence of God on behalf of the people to make the blood offering once a year. But even he had to smoke the room up with incense before going in, so there would still be some level of barrier between sinful man and holy God. And he had to do this and bring that sacrifice every year over and over and over again without failing, without missing it. But Hebrews 9, 11, but the Messiah has appeared. High priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. This is what Christ has accomplished once for all, permanent atonement. The Son of God carried the message of redemption, and then he provided that redemption in his atonement. He redeemed and cleansed his people. After he accomplished that, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, to the place of power and honor and authority. That's not a picture of a defeated, dead person, is it? It's a picture of victory, a kingly victory, a messianic victory. This world would like us to believe that God has been defeated. The enlightened intellectuals have explained sin away. They they are the ones who offer freedom from religious shackles. And we know in our heads that that's foolishness, but it can be disheartening to see some churches on the decline. It can be disheartening to see some prominent pastors and even entire congregations assimilating worldly ideology and following the leadership of sinners who mock God. It can be disheartening to see young people become apostates from the faith in which they were raised. But God wants to remind us even now that the Son is victorious, and He's been victorious, and that victory won't ever be taken away. Our author of Hebrews explains later in the book that even though things get harder for God's people, the victory of Christ just shines all the clearer, all the brighter. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I mean, why was it when we saw governments allowing casinos and gentlemen's clubs to open but refuse to allow churches to gather? Why was it that the gospel still thrived in that environment? Why is it that the message of Christ in underground churches and in places like Afghanistan and China, why is it that the message of Christ and the message of redemption in the gospel thrives? Why? Well, it's because evildoers can do nothing to thwart the plan and message of God. Nothing. The victory is already won in Christ. 
And specifically in Hebrews 1, the plan of redemption will not ever be thwarted. Nothing will pluck you out of the Father's hand. No disease, no war, no famine, no government will ever undo that. Amen? There's only one person who sits at the right hand of God. One. One person sits at that place of authority. It's Jesus Christ, the Savior. He has provided that once-for-all atonement, and he holds the authority. He is victorious. He is the enthroned Son of God who saves sinners. So, how is Christ qualified to carry and fulfill the message of redemption? He's the master of creation. He's the perfect representative. He is the victorious Messiah. And if that's not enough, there's one more. He is superior to all others. He is superior to all created things. In case we don't get it yet, our author says, nobody else is superior to Christ. Verse 4, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So our, our author mentions Christ's superiority to angels here intentionally. Verse 4 functions as a transition from the abstract to the body of the paper. And I think there are, are a couple of reasons for mentioning Christ's superiority to angels uh, here right at, at the beginning. First, this, this just carries us into the rest of the chapter. The Hebrew believers were confronted with a false teaching that Jesus was an angel, not the Son of God. Many of these believers probably had never seen Christ with their eyes. So they're you know, more susceptible to these errors. And our author is correcting this. The Jews held angels in very high regard as the most superior beings next to God. And there was error that, that even taught that the archangel's power and authority surpassed that of the Messiah. So the rest of the chapter is actually spent correcting this, utilizing the Old Testament, to elevate the superiority of Christ, Jesus, over the angels. And second, I, I think this mention of Christ's superiority to angels is meant to function as kind of a, an encapsulation of all created things. If he is superior to angels, then certainly he's a superior to man, to us, to every other thing. He is superior to any other prominent faith figure that you can think of. The Son of God, and only the Son of God, is inherently worthy of our faith and devotion. He has a more excellent name. He has the name that is above every name. He is inherently worthy. You see, our faith is in Jesus Christ alone. We follow Jesus, not man. Whatever faith figure you might revere and however helpful that person might be in their writings or their sermons or their life, whatever, that person is not Jesus. Fallen man can and will disappoint. People are sinners and fail and may not fulfill what they say and live up to your expectations of them. They will not live up to perfect holiness expectations. Sometimes, sadly, they they may even turn out to be frauds. So even though we benefit from solid teachers and authors and other mature Christians, we keep our faith focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith focus is on Him 
Hebrews 11 and 12, all about this. The Messiah, the Son of God, is the only one inherently worthy of our devotion and our worship. His name is above every name. He has that more excellent name. The angels themselves cry out with a loud voice in Revelation 5. Remember what they cry out? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Even the angels attribute all of these things to the Son. He is, he is the most superior. He is the most excellent and He is inherently worthy of our faith. So we've been reminded of how God revealed the plan of redemption in these two stages. God revealed the promises of redemption through the prophets, and God revealed the fulfillment of redemption through His Son. Christ is worthy, and He's qualified to carry and fulfill the message of redemption. He is the master of creation. He's the perfect representative. He is the victorious Messiah, and He is superior to all other created things. Hebrews goes on to to reveal to us that Christ's position is superior. His priesthood and ministry as great high priest in the order of Melchizedek is superior. Faith in him is superior. And living in light of that faith in perseverance is superior. This is what's unpacked in the rest of the book. Verses 1 through 4, just a small taste of that. So don't be afraid of the book of Hebrews. I encourage you to read it and study it. Christ has accomplished what the Old Testament has promised. Sins are atoned for. Slavery to sin has been broken. God himself frees the sinner. And we turn to Christ alone in faith and repentance. And and just like Pastor Rich exhorted us this morning, let Christ... And only Christ be the source of our satisfaction and the focus of our faith. Let's pray. Lord, we're ever so thankful for your word, for the clarity of your word. Lord, we're thankful for for your work on the cross, your once-for-all permanent atonement. You're not being re-sacrificed over and over again. You sit at the right hand of the Father, even now, interceding for us. You are our mediator, and you have provided that necessary atonement. Let us turn to you alone in faith. Help us to keep our faith focus upon you, and let that light shine to others around us. In Christ's name, amen.